Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of those. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. Now they are trying to kill me. Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him again, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me also. And the Lord said to him, Go back to where you came from, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king of Aram. Also anoint Yehu son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Mola, to succeed you as prophet. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in all of Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So God, as we consider this narrative we pray, as always, for insight and understanding into who you are and into who we are and into the kind of relationships you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The guys disappeared. I realized, why, wow, isn't this incredible? Look at us all back here together. 
we got to clap again for ourselves for being here, for you for making it. <laughs> We're clapping for our Zoom people who are, Zoom is still here strong. We got our whole Zoom family, Zoom. We're, we're glad to have you here. You saw Michelle here. Did you see Michelle? Where's Michelle? Yep, we're excited to have Michelle. We're just going to keep, keep clapping. Michelle, we're glad you're here. Steven, there's Michelle. Michelle's a rock star. She's here. Steven is here somewhere. He, he probably greeted when you, you, when you came home. I mean, we've been doing our best to get ready for you to be back here in the building and for this to continue on in, in, in Zoom. Oh, we got Steven here. There's Steven back there. All right, Steven. We're glad that Steven and Michelle are on the team. That's what happened. We multiplied while, uh, you know, some had babies in the pandemic. We kind of had Michelle and uh, Steven. So we're multiplying here at, uh, at the Avon Hope staff. So anyway, it is so great to have everybody back in the building here. And again, for those who are on Zoom, and this is the new reality for us. We have all kinds of things planned in the future for this this space, you can see how far you are away from a new stage, new, new other things happening so we can make sure that when we're worshiping together, we are able to include everyone, whether you're here in New York City or you're all the way around the world. But it is really great to have you back in the building with us. With that said, there are some adjustments that I have to make. I'm used to talking to a camera, so it's a little weird to see you here, um, but it's fabulous. But uh, I'm going to have to catch on to what's going on here now. And then... The music. I, Nick has been talking about this day for like a very long time because, you know, I mean, I tried to be a good listener to the music and sing along. When, when it was just Nick and I singing to each other, it was a little weird. So we were really, I know he's very excited to have other people to, to sing with. And we did have to tell Rodrigo, the guitarist, to put away the smoke machine because they were, they were ready to rock it out. But, uh, and so maybe we'll work the smoke machine in at some other point. But we have all kinds of exciting things in store for uh, Avon Hope as we continue through the summer. And it's really, again, encouraging to see you back with us today. Well, we are in the midst, actually coming to the end of our early summer series on the subject of fear. And uh, you can go, by the way, on adventhope.org, where I, I'm pretty sure, last time I said this, we weren't quite, quite there yet, but that we have most of the recent sermons up to speed, and I think all of them from this most recent sermon series on fear at avonhope.org. But we are coming to the close of this series uh, this week, and then Michelle's going to speak to us about it next week, and then we're shifting gears for the rest of the summer. But today we're looking at just this incredible scene in uh, chapter 19 of 1 Kings. But to understand what's going on in chapter 19, you really have to understand a little bit about chapter 18, and we didn't have the time to read all of that for you, but let me just give you the, the, the quick highlight of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. And if you've read the Bible story, you've read the Old Testament, you may be familiar with this story because it's such a dramatic one. We have uh, Elijah, who is this prophet, and uh, he was instructed by God to uh, talk to the people of Israel who were debating which of the gods around them was the, the one true God. And so in chapter 18, we have this incredible description of God showing up in a way. There had been a drought in the land that God had inspired. That's the intonation of the Bible. And, uh, and the rulers were, were debating, who is, who, what, which of all of the gods around us is the one true God? And so the king, uh, Ahab, had married a woman, Jezebel, and she was, she was a, a, an advocate for the gods of Baal. And so uh, she had uh, recruited many priests of Baal, and uh, so the people were 
we're torn as people are want to do when their leaders are presenting one thing. Everybody wants to follow the leader, and uh, Elijah was feeling like he was on his own. And so they had this great uh, showdown on Mount uh, Caramel. Uh, Elijah set up this, this, this match, if you will. It was going to be the gods of Baal versus the one true God, the God of, of Elijah. So you may remember the story. They set up an altar. Elijah let the gods of, of Baal do their thing, and they were, literally the Bible says they were dancing and, and, and uh, singing and, and shouting, and uh, God never shows up. And Elijah is there on the sidelines kind of boldly taunting them. Where is, where is your God? He, he's nowhere to be found. Uh, one translation says, is he using the bathroom? I mean, this is uh, Elijah taunting the, uh, the gods of Baal, and of course, they never show up. And then as, as Elijah moves into his moment, it only took a word uh, before fire came down, destroyed the altar, destroyed the sacrifice, destroyed the water that Elijah had dramatically poured over, over the sacrifice, and it was all gone. It was just this is an incredible scene. If you've got some time in the afternoon, you can go back and read 1 Kings chapter 18, which is the setup to where we are today. And so after this, it, the people were convinced the God of Elijah, the God Elijah has been talking about is the one true God, and they literally are so convicted that they're like, we got to get rid of these priests of Baal, and they go and they kill all of the priests, all four of them. It's a dramatic, it's a bloody scene, it's a, it's a, a, a terrible scene, but uh, the people were, were inspired. We've got to get rid of this, and uh, this is a false God in our land, and so out with the gods of Baal. Again, dramatic, dramatic fashion here for, for Elijah. Uh, and so we get to chapter 19. This would explain why, why Jezebel is so disturbed that all of, her, all of her priests have been wiped out and Elijah seems like the one to blame. That's where we get to our text of emphasis today in chapter 19. And so after chapter 18, Elijah looks like a hero. I mean, he looks like a superstar. He boldly stood, stood up uh, for God. Again, everyone was, it seemed like, and at least in his mind, everyone was against him. There had been other elements of the story where he felt alone, but he kept to being this voice of integrity. He spoke with conviction and the fearlessness, and it paid off. So he was the hero of the story, and again, he was proven correct. By the way, Part of, the, the part of his message was, hey, the God of, of the Bible, the God of the old, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to end the drought. And so that very evening, after the sacrifice was made and God had proven himself, God does it again by sending uh, rain. And so, so, I mean, Elijah's just the height of his, of his success. I mean, what more could you ask for but God showing up in this incredible, incredible way? And so that's as we get to chapter 19, why chapter 19 seems so out of character for everything that we've already seen in chapter 18 of Elijah. He was, he was bold. He was fearless. And yet, as soon as Jezebel sends this message to him, he receives the message we're told that Elijah was afraid, afraid, and he ran for his life sat down under a tree after running out under a bush and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, jumping ahead about 800 years, by the time of the first century, 
Elijah was considered the prototype for all prophets. He was the one of acclaim. His legend was epic. When John the Baptist showed up, you know, John the Baptist was cousins with Jesus and came before Jesus. The peop, John the Baptist was powerful, but the people were so convicted by John the Baptist that they thought the only thing they could think was, is this Elijah back? Has he come back 800 years later and now he's preaching to us? That's how influential Elijah was. When John the Baptist came, the only thing people could say, this, this has got to be Elijah, he came back. Um, everything about Elijah was revered, how he dressed what he ate, his integrity, he was, he was a rock star, a heroic figure throughout uh, Israel's history. In fact, in the New Testament, when Jesus was fully uh, revealed, we get this story where Jesus takes a couple of his close disciples up on the mountain and he, his face is transfigured and they're like, this is God. It's kind of when they have this moment where they realize that God is among us in Jesus. There are two Old Testament Bible characters there, Moses and Elijah. Moses, the, the, the one that God had given the law to, and Elijah, because these were two just towers of integrity of the Old Testament. It should be noted, by the way, if you keep reading through the rest of First Kings and get to Second Kings, in the very beginning of Second Kings, you have to have the story where, again, and God must have been into drama with Elijah. Elijah is taken away in a chariot of fire. And the implications is that he goes to be wherever God is and never experiences death. Thus the reason why when John the Baptist came, they're like, Elijah, he never died. He was taken away in the chariot. He must be back again after these 800 years. And so Elijah never experienced uh, death. So again, John the Baptist, a rock star of the Bible, and so it's so surprising that we get here in the midst of his narrative, of his story in the Bible, that we have this, what really seems like a failure of fear. He was so afraid that he runs away from Jezebel, despite all the incredible things that God had promised for him, and all the incredible things that God had done, including just seeing this incredible experience of the fire coming down and consuming the altar. So what is going on? What can we learn from this Elijah story as we gather together uh, here today and gather on Zoom today? Well, I think there is one really important and obvious uh, lesson, and it is that, this, that even the best of us, and Elijah was the best of us, even the best of us in times of stress and anxiety can and will be overcome by fear. I mean, <laughs> nobody more amazing than Elijah, and even Elijah overcome by this, this anxiety and fear, even though he just experienced this incredible, uh, this incredible uh, uh, act of God's power. So even the best of us are going to experience and be overcome by anxiety and fear. It's just the reality of the human experience. So that leads to the bigger question, and that is, you know, Why? Why was Elijah? What was going on? Why was Elijah so fearful, even after such a dramatic example of God's action? And why do many of us struggle with fears too, even though we may believe that God is active and does things in the world? What is going on? Well, I think from the narrative, from uh, 1 Kings 19, there are two obvious responses to that question. First of all, looking at, again, Elijah's experience, understanding 
the limitations of our own action and piety can be disconcerting, can cause fear. Once we realize our own lack of ability to get things done or to do what we want to do or be the kind of people that we want to be, that can be disconcerting and make us really fearful. I mean, think about when, when Elijah gets to, to be with God. What does he say? He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. He's appealing to his own personal piety and his action. But the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. In essence, he is confessing his failure. He was like, you made me a prophet. In fact, I was the only one. I can't blame it on another prophet because there are no, none left. I'm the only prophet. You gave me a, a, a message, and I did my best. I was zealous for you. I was zealous for you, and it didn't work. It was a failure. I mean, I completely messed this thing up. He's appealing to his, not, not just a failure in, in, in his action, but his failure in his, his spiritual failure. He's, 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 he's appealing to his piety. I was righteous. I did what I was supposed to do, and the people, they didn't follow. And so, look, failure creates fearfulness. When we fear, fail, it, it, it means we also often end up afraid, like, because if we can't do it, if our strength or ability or smarts, and look, I know we got smart people here today, we've got smart people on, on, on Zoom, Avon Hope is full of smart and talented people, but uh, what happens when you're smart and you're talented and all your degrees and all your education come to the point and you still fail? That's tough. And I know, I mean, all of us have experienced that at some, some level, right? I mean, I don't know, I don't, I mean, take, raise your hands if you've never failed before, and then we will, uh, you know, nobody will raise their hands, or somebody will raise their hands and will maybe laugh at you because there's some failure that you're not telling us about. But look, all of us has, have failed, and it's a tough experience to get to a point where, again, we put all of our effort in, and we fail. And then in sp the spiritual realm, that can be even more difficult because we feel, you know, maybe, maybe we grew up in a home that, was w w that taught that your value comes from being spiritually successful. And when you're not spiritually successful, that reflects on you in some poor way, right? That's one of the great challenges of Christianity, this issue of legalism. Like, we got we to earn our keep. And when we're not earning our keep, even though we've tried to do everything and make it all work out and we're still not the person we want to be or we don't overcome the thing that we're hoping to, to overcome, that can create a lot of fear in our experience. And so it seems like Elijah is wrestling with this element of failure. He did his best. He was zealous for the Lord. And it didn't work out. And it didn't work out. It wasn't enough. It's hard when you're not enough when your efforts aren't enough. That can create fear. Uh, secondly, from the narrative, we see that being confronted with our failure can be isolating. And isolation can just magnify our fears when we're alone. I mean, I'm the only one left. Remember what Elijah said, right? Again, he's talking with God, and he's making this appeal, and God is like, what are you doing here? Why are you here back at the mountain? You left the mountain a long time ago. Why are you... Why are you here? He says, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. He's like, I'm, I'm alone. 
There's nobody else. So his failure has now led to the recognition that, that he is isolated and, and alone. And when we feel isolated and we feel alone, as many of us have experienced over these last 15 months of the pandemic, I mean, some of us really got to experience aloneness. There was isolation, and isolation and feeling alone and feeling lonely can be fearful. I think we can resonate with what uh, Elijah was going through. He's the only one. There's nobody left. He's been the only one to, to stand through the, through the ages and to be the, the man God is calling him to be. And that, that failure and that aloneness, uh, that, that aloneness can make you feel very, very afraid. When we feel like people have let us down and we feel isolated because of that, uh, again, that can create fear in us. And it also explains why he's running away, right? I mean, if you've ever failed at something, uh, sometimes actually the inclination is to be alone, to like run away, to get out of there. We get that sense from Elijah's like, ah, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm gone. I'm getting away. And so he runs and runs and runs and runs. And so failure can just perpetuate the sense of isolation, and that leads to fear. You know, with this in mind, like a note here, the truth is we're not, as humans, I think, really that good at assessing our, our success and failure, at least especially maybe when it comes to spiritual things. Maybe in general that's an issue for us. I mean, maybe you've set up systems where you can assess, you can, you can assess your, your success and your failures and your experience, and amen to that. But for many of us, really knowing what's going on, because we don't know the big picture, we're not very good at it. I mean, again, think about... Uh, how the story in, in verse or chapter 19 ends. God is like, hey, I have reserved 7,000 in all of Israel. So Elijah's like, I'm the only one left. And as of a prophet, that was true. But God is like, you know what? You didn't even know. Whether it was from the success of Elijah or, or it was from God working and there were people in the land, but Elijah had no idea what was really happening. There are 7,000 faithful people in the land who have not bowed their knee and kissed the ground of Baal. That's the message that God has. You, you don't know your success. If you think of yourself as a failure, but you don't know what's going on because you don't see the big picture. That's what God is saying to Elijah. And I think that message, again, is relevant for us, too. Sometimes we feel like a failure, and we feel like we, we just didn't do it, and God is like, you don't, you don't know. You don't know the story. You don't know what's going on. There's bigger things at play here than what your mind has a grasp of. I also love the fact that God uh, didn't uh, chastise e Elijah. You know, he's like, what are you doing here? Uh, but he's, 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 not, he's not giving him a, a hard word here. In fact, a comforting word, if anything. The God who uh, is not afraid of our failure. When we come running, whatever it is, with our tail between our legs, God isn't the one who chastises us. And we're often chastising ourselves and can't get over our failure ourselves, but that, that's not God's way of doing things. certainly not here with Elijah. So recognize that we don't have all the information and God knows more than we do, and so let's be careful about how we assess our own failures and our own successes. Now, I do want to note that Elijah's run here is really interesting because he was running at least for his people backwards, so if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Numbers chapter 13, where the children of Israel, uh, and their story is they were slaves for over 400 years in Egypt, 
and God rescues them in dramatic fashion again, brings them out, and he takes them to Mount Oreb, the same mountain, and uh, he gives them the, the, the Ten Commandments there in the, in the, in the area, right? So same area as, as uh, Elijah is running back to. And then he sends them on out of there. He's like, this is not the place that you're staying. You're supposed to go on. In fact, I have this, this land for you that they came to know as the promised land. And as the story goes, you can read Numbers 13, they get to the promised land and they're fearful and they don't go in. And God says, you're going to look, because you wouldn't trust in me, you're going to spend 40 years in this wilderness. And so they spent 40 years, the ancestors of Elijah spent 40 years wandering in this wilderness because they didn't enter when they were supposed to. Well, where is Elijah? He's right back in the wilderness. He, was, he left the promised land, right? So hundreds of years have gone now. The people are established in the promised land. Elijah's fearful and running from, and where is he going? He's going back to the wilderness. He's he literally headed backwards. He ends up back at the mountain that God sent them, the Israelites away from. And so he's in the wilderness. No wonder he's confessing. He's like, I, I just have had enough. I've had enough. I've had this, the same issues as my ancestors. He's kind of reflecting on the experience of the, of the people of Israel. He's now in the wilderness, and, and he's feeling lost. And we're told that he takes not 40 years, thankfully, but 40 days getting back to the mountain. So he's headed in the wrong direction, Right? I don't know about you, but I have an inclination to do that sometimes too when I've experienced failure or fear. I like go in the wrong direction or I go back to what feels uh, safe, even if it's an area that's not safe. We keep going back to things like, well, maybe things will be better if I get back to this, this place. And God is like, I, I already sent you out of here. Why are you coming back here? Literally, why are you here is the question that he asked Elijah. Why are you here? I've sent your people out of here. You don't need to be back here again. And so he's, he's in the cave, and, uh, but before he gets to the cave, this angel shows up, and uh, you know, one of my favorite elements of the story here is that you know, he says it's time to, time to die. I mean, I'm just done with this. I'm, I'm sick of it. You know, I, again, not to get too deep in your pandemic experience, but I feel like in the quarantine, some of us were not doing too well. We're like, I, I can't take this anymore. So some of us are like, I'm just going to crawl up in a ball and be in the, the, uh, in the corner. Some of us are like, these masks, done, I'm out. We just gave up on, on it all. What happens, happens, right? So this is the, the kind of the, the experience that Elijah, he's done. He's done. So he lies down with the implication that he's, he's, he's going to fall asleep and he's just hoping it's, it's over. But then the Bible says that an angel touched him and, uh, and he wakes up, and there is some, some food, like hot, cold, like cooked food. Like somebody took time to prepare this food. So God miraculously provides. He's out in the desert. There's nothing there. Provides this, this food for him, right? And he said, get up and eat and drink the food. And uh, this in particular, it reminded me of those uh, the Snicker commercials. You know, you're not who you are when you're, when you're hungry. You're not, you're not you when you're, you're hungry. You remember those? Uh, I think this is like, again, a God in the, the snicker moment. He was like, listen, you need to eat something. You, you're, you're a little bit whiny right now. You're not feeling great. Why don't you have something to eat? And so Elijah e eats this, the baked coals, but then he goes back to sleep again. Uh, and then an angel again wakes him up, says, you got to eat again. And then 
Elijah is off on his journey again back to the mountain from which the Israelite people came from. Not who you are when you're, when you're hungry. I love that. Uh, I want to get to my favorite uh, part of this, and this is this question that God has. So finally, Elijah again gets to the cave. There's some linguistic uh, idea that uh, this may be the same cave where Moses also experienced his uh, time with God, where he saw God. I mean, that's a little bit of a speculation, but the idea is in the same area, and here God is again, and uh, he asks him this great question, what are you doing here, Elijah? Twice he asks them the question, what are you doing here, uh, Elijah? The question is reminiscent, by the way, of Genesis chapter 3. If you remember that story, that's the story of the first time that, uh, that uh, humans went on their own way, went against God, Adam and Eve, and uh, Adam and Eve are hiding in the garden, and we're told that, that uh, God shows up and says, where are you, right? It's the same, linguistically, the same idea, and it's a question that actually shows up in other places in the Bible, and the idea is that it's a question that God asks us when he needs us to reframe our thinking a little bit, and uh, like, let's get real here, where are we, what are you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's a great question. What are you doing here? Why are you back here? Why are you back at this, this place? We, I, I just showed up for you, and now you're back, back here. Uh, Elijah had, had the opportunity to, to engage with God and respond to this question uh, twice. Uh, and so, again, we see this great scene where, as we read, God shows up. Again, much like maybe he did with uh, Mo- Moses, he's like, "I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there for you." And so uh, Elijah is waiting, and then we're told that a wind, a great wind, comes, and then a great earthquake and a, a, and a great fire. All of these elements, if you read through the Bible narrative, are elements of judgment. I mean, that's what though, these are the, what happens when God is about to bring judgment. There is wind, and there is fire, and there is earthquakes. But in this case, God isn't in any of those things. It's a whisper that Elijah hears. It's God speaking tenderly. It's not the earthquake. It's not the fire. It's not the the scene of judgment that God is bringing to Elijah. You know, one might expect that. I mean, you you ran away. You should be bold. Why are you running away? Why are you fearful now? Why isn't God chastising Elijah? But that's not what we see here. It's It's a voice, a whisper a a call to Elijah. And so, again, Elijah goes out and now has this opportunity again to speak to God. By the way, the the first uh, idea when God comes to him in the cave is that God kind of impresses him, and Elijah responds. Now God has showed up. He's in, in person there with Elijah, and it's in this voice, this small voice that comes to him that he is able to respond and to engage with God. And it's a God who cares a God who loves, a God who isn't chastising, a God isn't, who isn't saying to him, you got to get it together. Rather, it's a God who's saying, I am here for you, and you are not alone. You are not alone. That's the message, really, of this story of Elijah. You are not alone. I, I, I proved that many times for you. One time was in dramatic fashion with the altar, but now here you are at the mountain, and again, you're feeling 
like you don't have it all together and that you're feeling like a failure and you're feeling isolated, but you're still not alone. This is the message of the God who speaks in a small and quiet and whispered voice to Elijah. And this whole story, of course, reminds us of, a, of another story, another time of, of, of turmoil, another desperate situation when, by all accounts, everything looked lost and everything looked to be a failure. Uh, Jesus was dead. The disciples had been scattered. The people, the people, the people weren't convinced. And everything looked pretty bleak and pretty bad. But God, like he was for, for Elijah, was still present through all of that. God was there when Jesus faced the religious leaders and when he faced uh, the Roman authorities. God was present. The Father was present when Jesus carried his own cross. The Father was present when Jesus was nailed to that cross. God was present when Jesus breathed his last breath. God was there. I mean, this seems like an abject failure. But God was there through all of that experience. Uh, the isolation, the, the fear of the disciples. Because God was present in that experience, and because Jesus, God himself, also experienced those things, but faced them without fear, we have hope for our future as well. That when we are feeling like Elijah, when we're feeling like failures and we're feeling like we want to run away and we want to run back to a safe place, a, a place that actually isn't all that safe for us, when we're going back into the wilderness, that God is still present for us in that moment, that God doesn't give up on us. And so if today you're like, okay, we're, the pandemic is opening and life is reopening, but you're still like, I don't have it together. Like, I'm glad that things are moving on, but my job isn't what it wants to be, or my my checking account is not where it needs to be, or my relationships aren't where they need to be. If you're feeling like you don't have it all together, and yet you've been trying as hard as you can to get it together, and that's not working, that, that's a time of fearfulness. But the story of Elijah and the story of God's work through Jesus are stories that give us hope, that we aren't alone, that God, that God is going to do what he's going to do in our experience, but he invites us to, to come to him. And if that means that we, we are going to maybe foolishly trek through the wilderness for 40 days to do that, he's still going to receive us. He might ask us, what are you doing here? <laughs> you here? You came back here to see me? I was there, by the way. I was on Carmel with you. You could have just asked me in Carmel, but you're back here. Okay, let's deal with it here. But he didn't chastise. He spoke with a, a small and loving and caring voice, a whisper. God wants to speak to all of us in that same voice with the same message that he is here for us and he has not left us alone. And so today, if you're feeling like a failure or you're feeling isolated, maybe this is the first time out of your apartment for some of you and you're like, I'm going to brave it because I want to be together, back together with the church family. We're glad that you're here and God is here. But God was also back in your apartment, by the way. God is always inviting us to engage with him, and he's got the same message for us time and time and time and time again, and that is that you are not alone. We have a God who cares for us even when we are feeling miserable and desperate and like failures. 
And so, in the words of Jesus himself, who said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and you will receive rest. We can experience that rest today. And so, what better way to move on in our experience as a church family and as individuals than going to that God, the God who invites us to come to him wherever we are or whatever we, 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 we failed at and let him be for us what we can't be on our own, that presence that gives us peace. May he do that in your experience, in my experience, in our experience today. Amen.